You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. The first time we all sat down together, we didn't even know what to talk about. We didn't have words for it. We didn't have concepts yet. All the concepts that we now have that are connected with the gay movement and with gay consciousness, with gay culture, all come as a result of that first organization. Gay rights pioneer Harry Hay. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. Well, happy Pride. Well, you know, in the last 20 years, the LGBTQ movement has made enormous social and political strides. But what we sometimes easily forget is that enormous strides begin with baby steps. And more than seven decades ago, the man who took many of those first baby steps and established the modern gay rights movement was a man named Harry Hay. Now, Harry Hay knew something about organizing unpopular political movements because as early as the 1930s, Harry Hay was a communist. And this was at a time when the Communist Party was very homophobic. So Harry Hay actually married a woman and was married for several years before finally acknowledging that he was gay. Now, by 1950, Harry Hay recognized that the gay and lesbian community, which didn't even really have a name yet, needed rights and needed those rights protected. Calling upon some of the same skills he used as a communist organizer, Harry Hay started the Mattachine Society. And that, many historians agree, gave birth to the modern gay rights movement. I met Harry Hay in late 1990. He was the subject of a biography written by Stuart Timmons, a book called The Trouble with Harry Hay. They went on book tour together, and that's when I met the two of them. So here now, from 1990, Stuart Timmons and Harry Hay. Stuart, let me begin with you. Why did you write this book? I felt that it was a missing piece of American history. Uh, not only is Harry the founder of the modern gay movement in the United States, uh, which is a story that by its own nature was never told because all of the people of his generation essentially went underground and remained anonymous. But as uh, a lifelong radical, Harry was part of most of the progressive movements of the 20th century. There was an enormous amount to learn, particularly about the uh, the radical left and the American Communist Party, of which uh, Harry was a member. Uh, a lot of the uh, those activities and organizations, by their own nature, very much like the gay movement, went without records, uh, completely unrecorded. There was a lot of original research and sort of deciphering to do. But that was all of necessity, wasn't it? You you couldn't be an above-ground organization, could you? As, uh, being a red... Mm-hmm. In that period, in the 30s, no, was, that was absolutely impossible. The um, we had in each city there was such thing as a red squad, and the red squad was always ferreting out these various nefarious individuals who were doing such awful things as organizing trade unions, for example, or um, equally uh, red and uh, undesirable things like the NAACP or the ACLU. To be any of these organizations in 1935 was automatically to be concerned a communist. I read with a great deal of, of, of fascination the conflict within your own mind as being gay and also wanting to be a communist. There, there was that, that inherent conflict there. Well, it's, it's not necessarily an inherent conflict. 
Um, I wasn't, in that respect, I wasn't really that concerned about it. What I was really, you see, after all, in 1930, there isn't such a thing as thinking of yourself as being gay. It didn't True. exist yet. This is a concept that will come later. Uh, in that particular period, we were, uh, we were preferred, we were perverted heteros. We were heteros who performed nasty acts on uh, alternate Saturday nights. We were degenerate. We were, uh, degraded. We were full of sin. Uh, any uh, of the, uh, the so-called, um, uh, public authorities who would be concerned with morality, with the behavior, with the laws, with, uh, uh, with uh, let's say, uh, uh, cultural activities. Th these are the things we would be told. And so consequently, all of us are thought of ourselves in these regards, just this is all we ever had, and this is all we have to think about. In my case, I always felt that what I held was something very beautiful. There was a dream in my heart. There was a heart, a golden something that I, something that I needed to say, something that I needed to see, something that I needed to comprehend. And I felt that once I found the words for that, I was able to tell you those words, you would understand just how beautiful it was and how contributive it might be. And this is what I was always looking for. So consequently, in the 30s, I recognized very early that what the, the, the struggles that were going on around Jim Crow, around against anti-Semitism, against what we had, in, I don't really have this on the East Coast, on the West Coast, we have what were known as restrictive covenants uh -huh. in, on different areas and tracts in each city, where, which made it impossible for, for various races of people to, to even rent in an area or even be in an area outside being domestic servants. So the, the, the people who were fighting against these types of restrictions to me represented uh, fights against oppressions I understood, and I felt very much, I felt very passionate about them too. And I thought to myself, you know, this is what I am. I am an oppressed person too, and all my brothers and sisters are oppressed people. But we haven't described it that way yet. And in, until I find the, the, uh, uh, metaphors, the, the, the physics, the, the mathematics, the, uh, uh, the lyric of how to describe who we are, I will work with these people and I will fight against other oppressions. And then when I finally find the words to describe us, then they will listen to me because I have helped them. Did, did the two of you get along well during the writing of the book? Oh, it went all over the place. Uh, we did not know we were going to wind up on friend, uh, as friends or even on tour together. Uh, and there was an awful lot of Sturm und Drang because, uh, as you just uh, pointed out, there are modern ideas of what seems to be a contradiction uh, for times past that uh, weren't necessarily in Harry's mind or with an awful lot of the people of his generation. So it took a long time for me to understand a lot of the, uh, the changes that have gone on, especially in these unwritten parts of society. One of the things that I think is important in recognizing what you referred to earlier is the conflict, is that people have said to me, you know, well, knowing how the Communist Party or how the Communist Party in Russia felt about homosexuals, how could you be involved with it? And the answer has to be, who wasn't? Everybody in the country felt that way. I mean, uh, let's say that not only did Joe Stalin feel that way, but so did Roosevelt, so did, Ro so did Churchill. No, there weren't any, any so-called people who were approving of what we were at all. So consequently, I, had, I didn't have to be concerned with that. It was par for the course that people didn't approve. What I had to find was the ways and means by which to tell them how beautiful it was. This is what my, this is what my whole problem was. Could you have eventually found that way to tell us were it not for the civil rights movement uh, that came along and gave blacks rights? 
No, I, I, I think that sooner or later I would have begun to find it because, you see, the civil rights movement comes along at a later date, but we're working for civil rights in the 30s, and we're calling it by a variety. We're not going to bunch it up into one, one ball of wax, such as the civil rights movement. Uh, we were fighting against Jim Crow. We were fighting against uh, um, that, the, the, the sort of, of, of accusing people of rape and accusing people of violation, which is all only a, a way by which you brought down a program on uh, of the other races, particularly on the black people. I was particularly interested to see how the uh, American Communist Party, which the current generation has been so completely trained not to even think about, uh, except in the most sort of horrified terms, how that movement discussed uh, the racial question in the 40s, you know, 20 years before the civil rights movement proper got going. They discussed the woman question in the late 40s and the 50s, 20 years before feminism got going. They never got around to the gay question. Uh, that was what Harry had to take up on his own. After this short break, Harry Hay explains where the term gay came from. Back to my 1990 conversation with Harry Hay. Where did the term gay come from? Well, the term gay actually is a 19th century word which uh, described people who were, shall we say, second-class citizens. They were the, they, they were from the point of view of nice, responsible people. They were irresponsible. They were irreverent. They were mocking. But what it really amounted to was that they were laughing at themselves as a uh, a way of of, uh, of being able to uh, subsist in this life. And in laughing at themselves, they would oftentimes, on the theater and the stage, uh, in vaudeville, make fun of themselves in order to make it possible for you, the audience, to laugh at them and so laugh at yourselves. So it was a form of mockery. It was a form of buffoonery. It was a form of humor. And it was a very important form of spiritual healing. It was also a perfect euphemism, as had to be used at the time. Uh, gay had the dictionary connotation of frivolous or uh, sort of uh, fast and loose. Uh, you know, a gay party uh, for, or, or a gay outfit could have been something that any society matron might wear. But at the same time, uh, to, to say the word, isn't this gay, if you go into a bar where you think a few others might be around of your particular stripe, uh, as you would have to say it at that time, 50, 60 years ago, uh, that would be a way in which you could send a signal. I was fascinated to learn all these other terms that were used uh, in, in times past, like temperamental and sensitive and brilliant and musical. All of these terms were used because the uh, the term gay hadn't quite been the agreed-on term yet, uh, and there was absolute uh, opprobrium against any... Uh, any mention of that word, just to to mention homosexual, would create some sort of uh, chill to go through the room, and might cause a lot of people to actually leave. Well, to even hint, as they did li about Liberace, yeah. that there might be something out of the ordinary. <laughs> yes. And the man won money in court. Yeah, that for just a hint. That libel suit was amazing. It, 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 they didn't ever say the word homosexual or anything. They, I think, they said fruity and minty and all of those other euphemisms. And everyone knew the double standard so well that uh, that, uh, and it was so scandalous that that's and what, the way it went. And what I think is most important is to realize just what a short time ago that trial was. Mm -hmm. 
So that we're talking about a, a, an early set of contemporary things that were happening, contemporary with the present time. That fact struck me that I'm sitting here in the presence of the founder of a movement that we forget sometimes how young that movement really is. Yes. Well, you see, the, actually, when I began the Manishin in 1950, we don't as yet have a positive gay identity. There isn't such a thing. This is what this, this is what our society set about to do, was to show, among other things, that uh, we had a whole consciousness of which the trigger was our sexuality. But that was only the beginning of it, that we recognized that was the whole way of looking at things, a whole set of values, which we had to, among other things, uh, feel first, then come together as a group and begin to talk about it. And in talking about it, begin to develop forms and ways of which that could be expressed. Because up until, for instance, the first time we all sat down together, we didn't even know what to talk about. We didn't have words for it. We didn't have concepts yet. All the concepts that we now have that are connected with the gay movement and with gay consciousness and with gay culture all come as a result of that first organization. And they were rather laboriously invented. I spoke with uh, Del Martin and Phyllis Lyon, the founder of the uh, Daughters of Belitis, the uh, lesbian um, uh, early organization. And they said, for example, they used the term, the problems of, of women, of lesbian women with children. They didn't come up with the term lesbian mothers for 10 or 15 years. And they, they kept talking about the problems of the children first before realizing that they didn't need to buy into the, uh, the general uh, uh, pejorative attitude so much. Harry, it's your view that, that gay people should not try to, to become assimilated? They should not try to be like straight people? Well, you see, the thing is that, that because of the fact that we have been obliterated for so long, we have to recognize that we have no way of describing our differences. So that in order to discover our differences, we're not going to do it all well by covering it up. Uh, what we have said all along is that when we assimilate, this is where we run into the problems. We run into assimilation. We're always denying ourselves. We're denying our spirit and we're denying our hearts. We're denying our way of seeing. And the result is that we end up uh, abusing each other. I mean, abusing ourselves with drugs and with liquor. It's, I think we might recognize the fact that a great many of the people who have gone into, into say, drug abuse or alcohol abuse have been actually drowning that little sissy kid. Why are we not any further along in the modern gay movement that we can have politicians other than Barney Frank and Gary Studs come forward and say, yes, I'm gay? Well, the... Um... <clears throat> I don't know that, in a way, I don't know that this is actually uh, an issue that we need to be concerned about. Uh, what I do want to say is this, that what we were up to then and what we are up to still is creating for ourselves a safe and viable social political space into which we can come to refresh ourselves, into which we can come to put things together to make new contributions out of our own consciousness and our own ways of thinking, and from which, out of which we can make our own recommitments. I think in the 20 first century, we're going to see that the United States is going to change from being the great melting pot to being the plural society. And in the plural society, many different minorities are going to have that type of sacred and viable space. And we, uh, the gay lesbian community, or the gays maybe, and the lesbian community, maybe it's two, needs that type of, of space in which we also can come to refresh ourselves and out of which we can make our commitments. Stuart, I wanted to ask you, was writing a book like this and working with Harry almost like uh, a good practicing Catholic meeting, meeting the Pope and, and sitting down to, <laughs> to write his biography? Uh, there, was, there was a little bit of that to it, I suppose, uh, except 
this is so non-Catholic. Uh, <laughs> Harry was actually kicked out of the Catholic Church. I sometimes compare myself to uh, Alex Haley writing the autobiography of Malcolm X uh, or, uh, or writing Roots. This was something that was uh, not strictly an as-told-to, uh, it was not by any means an as-told-to biography. I wasn't sure we'd stay friends. but And I, I interviewed more than 50 people who'd been involved with the movement because I wanted to try to get as many voices as possible in. I hope it's a start because there's an awful lot more gay history and a lot more radical history that needs to be told. Harry Hay died in 2002. He was 90. And you can find easy Amazon links to Harry Hay's book at our website, heardeverything.com. That's where you'll also find my 1995 interview with a person who's had a great deal of influence in the LGBTQ community despite being a relative of one of its primary opponents. My 1995 talk with the sister of then House Speaker Newt Gingrich, Candace Gingrich. I am a blood relative of the man who is the, the head of the Republican Revolution, who has ushered in this new brand of conservatism that you believe in. Therefore, quit lying to people. Gays come from all kinds of American families, and you can't stereotype us. And my 1999 interview with the mother of one of the first celebrities to out herself, Ellen DeGeneres, my 1999 talk with her mom, Betty DeGeneres. I worried about her well-being. I worried that she wouldn't have a man to take care of her. And I think she has taken care of herself rather well. And of course, we post new episodes of Now I've Heard Everything here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us on all major podcast platforms. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, my 1991 interview with a feminist author who helped us redefine how we think of beauty. The author of The Beauty Myth, Naomi Wolf. Any woman who stands up in public to say there's something wrong here, especially if she calls herself a feminist as I do, can invariably count on attention being directed at her appearance as a way to undermine what she's saying. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Thompson.